Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you believe in the paranormal? Today we hear from a Connecticut resident who investigates hauntings. He'll tell us spirits, if you believe in that sort of thing, aren't all bad. So why do they pop up? And what do you do if there's one lurking where you live? Later, we'll turn our attention to a Halloween classic, The Pumpkin. Americans are no longer breaking growing records. The Europeans are now topping the charts. We'll find out why coming up. First, have you watched Ghost Hunters? Paranormal investigators are real. Seamus Denniston is one of them. He's with us today. Seamus Denniston, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I understand that you are founder and director of the Thames Society of Paranormal Investigations. Uh, before we learn about your group, I was curious about your background. So you're a Connecticut native? Uh, yes, I am. Um, well, technically, I was born in Rochester, New York, but I spent most of my life in Connecticut. And uh, I currently live in New London, Connecticut, and uh, that's where the organization is based. So born in Rochester, but raised in the southeast corner of the state. Tell me what town and about your family. Yeah, um, I'm a first-generation um, American. My dad was born in, uh, over the seas in the old country, and uh, he was an Irishman, and my mom's Italian-American, and I was kind of just raised around, you know, folklore and, you know, ghost stories and things like that. More on your father's side because he was from Ireland? Yeah, he was. You know, it was a very popular discussion at family you know, family gatherings, it would always inevitably be a competition between my Uncle Joe and my dad talking about ghost stories and sharing that sort of thing. And, and when you say little people, you're talking about leprechauns? Yeah, the, the fairy people, the wee folk, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us, some? you remember a particular story that, that you remember growing up? Well, the, the particular story, I, and uh, my Aunt Sheila has referred to it a lot, is uh, the tale of the banshee. And she's claimed she's heard the banshee cry, you know, um, over the years and... You see, traditionally, it's associated with impending doom of someone yourself dying or someone you know. And fortunately, no one no one has, but they they claim to have heard it. So, so when you were growing up and you heard your relatives, your father talking about these stories, what did you think? Did you think they were just stories, or they were no? They were real, real to me. I mean, it, it wasn't some sort of thing where it was kind of um movie it was it was kind of passed on it was a cultural thing and and that i think a lot of irish people from you know over there it it's kind of a matter of fact thing people believe it's part of our culture and and spirits is par for the course did you tell these stories to uh, the kids that you grew up around i, did, I didn't um so you kept it in the family i kept it in the family um but it became more and more serious because what ended up happening was the house we moved into uh, I lived in uh, Monville, Connecticut at the time, and um, I realized the house was haunted. What, what, what did you hear or see? Well, my, my, my first real experience was, uh, you know, it's some small children do. I, I think I may have been six or seven, and I was, for some reason, I was sleeping at the foot of my parents' bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I heard someone calling my name. Mm -hmm. And I went to the bedroom door, and I opened the bedroom door, and I heard my name being repeated, repeatedly called from down the hallway. And um, my father had, had 
prior to that had bought my mother a baby grand piano for a present. And I heard the baby grand piano, a couple of notes going dink, dink, dink on the piano. And that was, you know, I was quite frightened by that. But that was my first kind of, um, you know, experience with unusual things. Did you think that maybe a sibling or someone was playing a trick on you? No, I, I, I didn't because I knew where, because I left, I shared my bedroom with my brother and I know he was asleep. So, What did your parents tell you the next day when you told uh, they them? Kinda, they kind of blew me off. Um, I come later to find out that they didn't want to share that, that they knew that other things were going on in the house, but because I was a child, they didn't want to scare me. Mm. Other things like? Um, well, my dad had a personal experience one time. He had a home office in the house, and come to find out the spirit was like a, a mimic. And if, if you came to my home and you spent any length of time there and you left weeks later, it could sound like you were in the house. Um, but this particular sound that he heard was the garage door opening and we had a breezeway door that led from the garage into the main part of the house and he heard the garage door open he heard the doors open slam he heard someone walk up the stairs and put their groceries down on the table kind of distinct noise so he thought it was my mother and he called out to her and she wasn't around and so he went investigated and found everything locked so he went back to his office left his office door open and then he hears the noise again and Hear the garage door open, breezeway doors open, et cetera, et cetera. No one around. But this time he was sitting on his desk waiting to see someone walk by. He sees a, a shadow man standing in the doorway of his office. That's pretty scary. So when we watch uh, horror flicks, usually when uh, a house is haunted, the inhabitants leave. But this is the house that your family stayed in. Yeah, we stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> My, my dad put a lot of labor and love into the house and did a lot of work to it over the years and made it, you know, really his. And he you know, he wasn't leaving. He wasn't allowed something like that. And I think it was part of our upbringing culture that, that in Ireland, everybody says spirits are, like I said, par for the course. They're everywhere. So I, I don't think it really bothered him as much as maybe some of us that had experienced these things. So. But since you grew up there, were you curious about you know, what the spirit was, the, the, the backstory of the home you well, were as, living in? As a kid, I, I, I was less curious, more scared. But as I got older and I became a teenager, um, my brother had a personal experience where he claimed he was held down in the bed. He woke me up in the middle of the night. He was in the next bedroom over, and he was held down. And he said a woman was holding him down in bed, and he was screaming. And that scared him enough that he moved into a different part of the house, different room. And they left me there. And I didn't have any experience. Well, I'm a teenager. I'm like, that's ah, my privacy anyway. Um, a few weeks later, I was, I had my TV. I left my TV on, fell asleep. And I woke up to seeing shadow people running at the foot of my bed back and forth. It was, it was, that was scary too. So When you say shadow people, so seeing shadow moving. Yeah, there was at least two or three people, almost like they were darting back and forth, like, uh, just, just like someone jogging at the foot of my bed. It was very odd. So fast forward, and you founded this organization as an adult, the Thames Society of Paranormal Investigations, and uh, the members are from uh, New London County. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, this kind of became your passion to follow paranormal activity? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I got involved in a few kind of, um, kind of thrill-seeking ghost hunting um, people, and after a few years go by, I realized it's really not going anywhere. Um, I really want to kind of do it my own way. And in about 2010, I ran into um, a person at, that I had worked, at, worked with at Connecticut College, and he had mutual interest in the paranormal. I said, I'm, I'm going to found a group. And um, 
And he said, okay, I'll join. So a lot of the original founding members came from Connecticut College. Um, and then after that, um, you know, more people added on. And for long, I have, you know, I have an associate director, Stephanie Cetera, and a couple other great people that really, um, you know, make it a great paranormal society. So what, do, what does your organization do? So we provide uh, paranormal investigations free of charge. We don't charge anybody for what we do. Um, we, we strive to try to find tangible results so we can show our clients um, we, through education and, and follow-up. And that's a big part of our organization that we're here to help. So um, obviously um, when people contact us, they're scared about what's going on. So we, we don't want to leave them scared. We don't want to give them more stories. We don't want to give them more reasons to be scared. It, ultimately, we want, we want to try to find a resolution for them. Uh, this sounds similar to a lot of different uh, groups or, or TV shows that people have watched over the last decade or so, like Ghost Hunters. Um, is that something that you find because people see it in pop culture, they're more um, apt to contact your organization? Absolutely. I think back in the 80s and, and even before that, this was kind of underground and there was a few select people and people didn't know how to find these people. And so people kept these type of things to themselves. And um, now, like you said, now it's in pop culture and we see these TV shows and bringing it more into mainstream and more people feel more comfortable not to be ridiculed that these things are happening to them. You must run into skeptics. What do you say even to people who are listening now and saying, what is he talking about? Well, There's no such thing as ghosts. Well, fair enough. Um, and they're entitled to their opinion. However, my personal experiences and things that I've seen, there's no doubt in my mind. But for skeptics, I don't think there's going to ever going to be any amount of evidence that's going to prove them otherwise. So someone will contact your organization and you go to their home or their business location mm -hmm. and walk us through, um, you know, what kind of information you gather and how you decide whether something it makes sense for you to move forward and investigate this because, you know, you have a day job. You, right. This, this takes a lot of time. It does take a lot of time. And like I said, we got a big group of people and various backgrounds that have kind of specialties. We have a psychiatrist in the and the group that kind of helps screen clients because, you know, there are people out there that maybe have some mental health issues. And, you know, and if that's the case where, you know, we can we can try to weed that out or substance abuse and things like that. And once we get past a lot of that, you know, and and these people seem legitimate, we'll we'll probably take the case. Uh, so you talk with them. And when you take the case, like what is an average time that you'll spend at a, on location? Well, on location. Um, at least eight hours, eight to ten hours sometimes. Um, but the the case is more involved in that. It takes weeks to pr in preparation. We do a background of the, the historical of anything that associated with the property may find a reason for the haunting and things like that. And we want to interview anybody that's ever witnessed anything. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of like a detective thing. So we interview. We try, to, we try to trick you up in the interviews and see if you're not perpetuating a hoax and things like that. It's very involved and it takes a lot of work. Um, but yeah, the night investigation is, is the fun part, of course. So walk yeah. us through that. So you come prepared, you've right. done your homework, uh, you've done the interviews, and then at night you go into this location with particular equipment. What do you bring with you? We bring all kinds of things, um, things that are made for ghost hunting specifically and others that are not, that are, that are items from other um, sort of um, tools from, from other things. And we, we've re-, you know, we've re um, Reuse them to try to use them in ghost hunting. So microphones? Uh, absolutely. Audio, visual. Um, we have um, electro, 
electromagnetic field meters, which is really used for more like electricians and things like that. And that helps us find um, false positives. It doesn't help us find ghosts, but it, it can try to explain environmental conditions for us um, that are that are noteworthy and that are we're finding as patterns for hauntings. If a place is haunted, uh, why would the spirit only come out at night? They don't. They come out all hours of the day. But a lot of times we're getting called by clients because they're home and they're home in the evening and overnight hours, and that's when they're witnessing this phenomenon. But we've had cases where we've gone there in the middle of the day because that's when that's when uh, it's happening. So. so you've been doing this for a number of years. I mean, wh- who do you learn from? I learn from some of the more seasoned people. I, I uh, there, there's real no real experts in the field. These are people that are, have experience, and and what's good is that there's a lot of great people in the field that have been doing this a lot longer than I have, and I'll, I'll learn from them. And uh, obviously, we know about the Warrens and things like that, and and maybe John Zaffis and other notable people in the field. Um, they're considered like the senior people. Um, I don't know them. Tell me a little bit about um, John. So the John, John Zaffis is actually related to the Warrens. So the Warrens are the ones associated with all the movies, The Conjurings, and things like that, based on their true case files. Um, yeah, but John Zaffis is, is he got into the field from the Warrens, and mm-hmm. and he's out of Stratford, I think. And um, but yeah, he does lectures too. So I try to attend lectures where I can and and read as much as I can on on the field and and anything related to the paranormal. How big is the, the community of investigators who are looking into paranormal activity here in Connecticut? It, it varies, but there's a, good, there's a good-sized community here in Connecticut. There's a lot of groups. Um, not all of them stick around as long as we have, but there are, there are a few out there. This is where we live. I'm talking with Seamus Denniston, founder and director of the Thames Society of Paranormal Investigations. So to walk us through some of the notable sites in Connecticut uh, that your group has investigated, let's start with the Mother Bailey House in Groton. Uh, that's, that's a great place. It's uh, located on Thames Street in Groton. Uh, I think it's owned by the city of Groton, actually. But what's great about it, it's a historic place. It's associated with the American Revolution and a, and a woman called... Uh, Ann Warner Bailey, and she was a, a famous woman in her time um, and was known to be a great storyteller, but she became famous. Um, she had a couple of stories associated with her, but the one that comes to mind, the British burned New London to the ground during the American Revolution, and they were afraid of that happening again in the War of 1812. So Anne, a soldier was going around looking for wadding for cannons, um, and what had happened was um, she donated her a petticoat. And she took it off and, and handed it to him. That they wouldn't. Women of the that time wouldn't even talk about having wearing one. Never mind taking it off. And she did that, and she became famous for that. And she would tell her story at the tavern that was inside the Mother Bailey house in the basement area. And um, unfortunately, she caught uh, her dress caught fire, and she passed away from the effects of that in the home. Um, but she was supposed to be a lively storytelling individual, and um, so there's a lot of stories associated with her. In the home, and 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 also an unknown colonial figure was seen in the bulkhead, uh, in the the old entrance to the tavern. A man seen in a tripoint hat and period dress. Um, and who contacted you to uh, investigate the Mother Bailey house? Well, it was the mayor at the time. Um, I had talked, I had spoken with her, and and um, she she actually came with us on the investigation. She found it fascinating, and and um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. So when you were walking through, can you uh, tell us what you discovered? 
so so I have a medium on the team too and what she does her name is Emma and what she did is she picked up on she picked some various spirits and she claimed that she, Anne, Anne was in one of the bedrooms upstairs and um and then but most of our most of our documented stuff and this is what the tangible one I'm talking about it's hard to substantiate mediumship mm-hmm. but um most of our evidence was caught down in the tavern area which is no surprise and we have a couple of recordings from that um what one was are you here Anne and I was asking her that and she says I'm here and then we had another one where um another individual for the city employee mm-hmm. uh, was asking George which would have been her uncle Anna, how's George? Mm-hmm. And and I believe we hear someone responding saying, dead, 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 dead. I think we have uh, that recording <laughs> off your yeah. website. Let's hear it. You want to ask anything, Tim? How's George? Anna, how's George? This is actually a device that we use. Okay. Uh, it's called the Frank's box, the spirit box. Uh, it's an experimental piece, piece of device that we use. It's supposed to be used as direct conversation, but obviously we do controls to, to establish whether we're talking. We're not just talking to ourselves. And, um, and this was the result of that. Mm. Yeah. So when you hear this spirit responding, I mean, does that raise? <laughs> I mean, I, how, how do you feel? When I hear that, I get excited. And I want to do more. And um, excited, not scared. Not scared. I'm kind of used to it, so I'm a little strange. I, I'm not saying I don't get scared from time to time, but but you know when stuff like that happens and it's relevant to us and and they're getting direct responses, we get excited. Uh, I was reading a, a story that the Patch did uh, on you and your organization a few years ago, and you actually walk them through the different types of spirits that mm-hmm. you and your team encounter. So a spirit like Anne would qualify as an intelligent um, spirit. And what I mean by that, not just because she was smart, I'm sure she was, it means they can interact with the living. Not all spirits can do that. Um, uh, so intelligent, you can get direct response from intelligent um, type of ghost. Um, there's also residuals, which is more like a tape replaying itself, and we can't interact with that. We may witness it when conditions are right. But um, that's more residual. And then obviously there's like the inhuman stuff that we hear about in all the horror films and the terrible. So the poltergeist. Occur- yeah, well, poltergeist. Yeah, poltergeist are very vigorous, haunting. Some um, They don't last very long. It's usually triggered. And a lot of theories in the paranormal field is based around a person. The person is generating enough energy to create a poltergeist. So it's a little bit different than someone that's died and now it was the spirit. When you travel around Connecticut, even out of state, how often are you encountering these intelligent spirits versus something like a, a poltergeist? So as I explained before, we vet people. So um, – we find some of the cases, a lot of the cases we deal with are intelligent hauntings, and, and, and a vast majority of them are residual. Um, those are the most common. But the, it's fairly common, but we, we try to do our homework and pick the best cases. Mm-hmm. And so once you discover some paranormal activity and it's legit, mm-hmm. what happens next? Or how do you counsel the, uh, the, the homeowner or the business owner well, that this is here? Well, it's, it kind of depends on the client and what their needs are. Um, if they just want answers, we can do that. And sometimes providing them with the evidence and explaining this is just a human spirit and 
they're benign and they're not here to hurt you and maybe you can coexist. They're happy with that. And other times people are, are it's a nuisance and people want it gone. And and I network and because I'm in the paranormal field, they're, I've worked with members of the clergy that I'm friends with and they come in, we'll do blessings and people from pastors and, and things like that that can do those sorts of things for them. So by the time uh, your team is on site investigating, uh, the conclusion is never that it's uh, maybe a critter up in the attic making that strange noise. Well, we look into that. That is that is part of our process. Uh, a lot of time because we'll do initial visit before we do the over, the whole shebang overnight long investigation, and we'll do a tour and a site survey of the house. Now, before I ask you about some other uh, locations that you've investigated around Connecticut, you had said something earlier that um, often you're not scared, but there have been the, an occasion. Oh, yeah. What was that uh, moment like when you were actually terrified? Well, when it's not my team members playing a prank on me. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, yeah, it, it it is not a natural thing to see a spirit or an apparition appear to you. And as amazing as that is for a paranormal investigator, it's still unsettling. Um, but what's most important to note is that how do you feel? Did you, you even once you get over the initial fright of seeing something like that, how did it actually make you feel? Did you feel their intent was to scare you? Because maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just for them to make themselves known. And that's how you have to stay objective. Now, when you're um, in all your years that you've been doing this, I mean, why do you think some spirits uh, may present themselves in particular locations? Uh, there's a lot of factors. Um, sometimes it's them just trying to send a message that they're also here and they're watching over the house. They're kind of like guardians or your home or your site, whatever, historic place. Um, I think that's a lot of it. Um, I, I, this is outside paranormal is my personal belief is that sometimes people pass and as a reward, you can come back and visit places that you enjoyed in your lifetime. Have you ever encountered something evil? Yeah, one or two cases, I think. Um, we had a ho- home case in Springfield that didn't end well. Um, <laughs> it was terrible. It was, I was scared. You know, there was portions of that. One that we talk about times where I was scared and that um, we had enough evidence there. We didn't even need to do a full investigation mm-hmm. because um, there was something so vigorously, I wouldn't say evil, but like um, – uh, intimidating. They intimidated us. They scratched us. They bit another investigator. We heard growling and all kinds of craziness. Um, yeah, typically those those are not the good cases. Mm-hmm. When you say it doesn't end well, so uh, at that moment in time you leave, but how do you then uh, follow up with the individual that has asked you to investigate? What do you tell them? Uh, I tell them what they have and, and <laughs> the resolution you need to take to correct this. And and it ultimately falls on the client to take my advice or not. It's up to them. Can you walk us through what kind of advice you would give someone in that particular situation? I would definitely, if I think it's, I would I would ask them to probably uh, contact someone that a religious person that that of their affiliation, mm-hmm. someone they're comfortable with to bring in to try to do a clearing of some sort. Mm-hmm. Or deliverance ministry or something like that. That's an interesting point because people come from uh, very different faith backgrounds or maybe no faith at all. Mm-hmm. And so I would assume that uh, at times they draw on what they've been, how they've been raised or how they've been taught and exactly. with what they're most comfortable doing mm-hmm. moving forward. That, that's, that's exactly that. And that, that's what's great about the paranormal is that it crosses all boundaries of religion. I'm not saying... You know, I'm not promoting anyone's religion over the other. 
However, I, I think we'll find a common spirituality amongst everybody. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Halloween's almost here. It's the perfect time to reflect on the paranormal. Our guest in studio is Seamus Denniston, a Connecticut resident and founder and director of the Thames Society of Paranormal Investigations, based in New London County. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more about the hauntings Seamus has uncovered at historical sites in Connecticut. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning about the people who investigate whether a place is haunted. With us in studio is Seamus Denniston, founder and director of the Thames Society of Paranormal Investigations. Now let's talk about some of the historic sites in Connecticut. It almost appears that this area, this region, would be a real hotbed when you look at our history. And we're really fortunate. Um, a lot of even in eastern Connecticut, where where we spend a lot of our time, uh, there's a lot of significant historical sites in that part of the state and have great history. Um, I don't, a lot of times we got involved in some of these historic sites because uh, during our research, we're trying to establish baselines and I didn't necessarily reach out to, um, you know, some of these historic sites because I wanted to find a haunting there that I just wanted to, you know, create a baseline. Some, you do research and basically, so I have a better base knowledge mm -hmm. of what a haunting is and what it is. And, mm -hmm. And, and sometimes at some of these historic sites, we find spirits are still lingering around. Sites like the Russell House in Middletown, I believe that's now on the campus of Wesleyan University. Tell yes, us about that. That was a great case um, that we had. Um, Sammy Russell was a, a sea trader and a sea captain. He made his money off of that. And um, so the house is, uh, was also rumored to be part of the Underground Railroad. Um, but now it's under the hands of Wesleyan. It was the Honors College and, you know things like that. They use it for various academic reasons. But uh, we are contacted two Halloweens ago, actually, to come up and do an investigation for them. Um, a lot of the public safety officers who work on campus have uh, talked about hearing footsteps behind them and just, you know, just the building gave them a creepy vibe. And sometimes a creepy vibe is a legitimate concern, I mean, because you don't always feel that way in your space. Um, it, besides that, they also... Um, you know, heard rapping and knocking and voices and things like that in the building. But during our investigation, um, I don't think they wanted us taping there. We set up our surveillance cameras throughout the building. And throughout the night, our cameras were constantly being knocked over off the tripods. And uh, we actually have footage of happening, um, which is amazing. So even though so, I didn't get a picture of a ghost, which is everybody wants to see that, the fact that my cameras are being knocked over and it was recorded is... Mm -hmm. Is interesting. I'm sure it wasn't one of those Wesleyan kids. Yeah, but it was on <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> There's also another site uh, that seems yeah. uh, it's very historic, the old Newgate prison in East Granby. Yeah, that that that's kind of on my list uh, to kind of try to get in there and get the team in there and see what we can find. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you will get requests from people oftentimes at this time of year or year round? Oh, my gosh, this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so, for fitting we, us in, Shane. Yeah, we're so busy. Um <laughs> Yeah, we're working on that three cases. We have a home case in Clinton we're working on. Uh, we, we're ongoing case that we have in Groton uh, at the subvets 
um, social clubs for submarine veterans. Apparently, they have some activity. We're going to be doing another investigation there. And we're doing events for the public, and we'll be at the Asheville Woodward House in Franklin, Connecticut. We're doing a public ghost hunt there uh, to kind of educate and outreach to the public to show them what an investigation is really about rather than what you see on TV so people can experience that sort of thing. So we stay busy. Uh, there is also another house in Groton uh, that you profiled on your website, uh, the Avery Cop House and Museum. Tell us about that house and what you discovered. Oh, that's a wonderful house. I mean, he, don't don't think you're going to go to these places and think you're immediately going to get creeped out because of ghosts and things like that. But the Avery Cop is a wonderful museum dedicated to the Avery family and mm-hmm. and uh, and and the cops that uh, Joe Cop inherited the home. It's uh, basically a living museum, and Joe Cop was a bit of an eccentric individual that inherited the home, um, but he didn't throw anything away. He was a very organized hoarder in, a, in the most polite way. Uh, you, you would open up random drawers in the house, and you'll find strings because he kept string. I mean, this guy didn't throw anything away. So it's really like a encaps- time capsule. And um, so the stories, no one's really stayed there overnight. There was a story of uh, one of the claims is of a woman standing in a Victorian dress in, in one of the, the windows, and she, she'll be seen standing there from time to time. Uh, but someone that stayed overnight, uh, like I said, not people, people don't stay overnight normally, but they allowed this person to stay overnight. And throughout the night, they were woken up to people, uh, someone walking down the hallway towards their bed, Emily's bedroom, and, um, and the door slammed into Joe Cop's old room. And then we'll tweet out a link on our, uh, from our Twitter at where we live to uh, this profile on your website. But you actually have clips from uh, the investigation using that device you call the ghost box, the sounds you're hearing. Yeah, it's spirit, yeah, spirit Frank's back, ghost box, yeah. Is this, a fam- is this a family affair for you, Seamus, in terms of like your relatives also helping you in your oh, my, bro- my brother is also on the team, and um, he, he joined a little later on, but... Um, yeah, he enjoys it, and he's one of my investigators. Mm-hmm. Do you have children? I have a 12-year-old mm-hmm. and, and my wife, um, but they're not really involved in it. They're kind of creeped out. <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> to, why. <laughs> to be honest, they don't want anything to do with it, but, um, but they're very supportive. Obviously, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time doing this, and, mm-hmm. and they're great for allowing me to you know, pursue my, my interests. So. Now, uh, for uh, someone who might be listening who thinks that there is a spirit um, where they live, mm-hmm. uh, what what are the do's and don'ts? Well, what I would what I would the first thing I would do is not assume that it's a ghost. I, I know that's maybe counterintuitive, but um, I don't want you to always think, "Oh, I saw a shadow," and, and all of a sudden you start thinking everything. You lost your car keys, and now it's now you're blaming it on the ghost and. And the you know, like I said, the squirrels in the attic and getting in there in the wintertime is now you think that's you know, you know, Mr. Marley there from the Christmas Carol shaking his chains. No, it's nothing. It's nothing like that. I just want people to be objective. And I know it's kind of tough when you're frightened, but like like I said before, you got to be stay objective and and realize how did it actually make you feel? Were you frightened by it or were you just startled? Um, because sometimes the intent there, and you can actually sense if you do this enough you can sense the spirit's intent and they may not be there to scare you they would just make themselves known to let you know they're still around um, i live in a, a house that's over 200 years old and uh, my neighbors have told me that the original owner was born in that house and mm-hmm. died in that house and so occasionally i wonder you know 
would I ever encounter this person's spirit? I mean, is that something? You, you may or may not. I mean, if we think about it, prior to our modern times, people gave birth in homes and they passed away in homes, and, and that was a very normal occurrence. Um, so it was a possibility. However, um, a lot of times we get calls from people that have recently done renovations to their homes and they've kind of disturbed things. Um, and, and that's very common. Um, so I shouldn't disturb. Oh. <laughs> Go up in the attic yeah, and maybe, move things maybe, around. <laughs> maybe they might get upset you putting in the new kitchen counter. I don't know. But. Uh, so you mentioned that the old Newgate prison is a, a place that you would like to investigate. Right. What are some other dream sites in this region that you would love to have you and your team go and explore? Well, Ledge Lighthouse in New London, Connecticut is, is on the list. Uh, Ledge Light is um, you know, Ernie, the, the lighthouse keeper. The story goes that he was so distraught over a woman that he threw himself off the top of the lighthouse. And now the lighthouse is purportedly to be haunted. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that have visited the lighthouse have experienced Ernie. What about the, um, there's also the Norwich State Hospital. Yeah, unfortunately, it looks like they're tearing down all the buildings. And it would have been nice to get in there and do something official. But um yeah. Well, maybe whatever they build there, I'll have an opportunity to go in. <laughs> Any other places? Um, well, there's places around the country I'd like to get in. I would like on my paranormal bucket list is like to get into Alcatraz in San Francisco and maybe maybe try to explore that one day. Uh, do you often take up uh, requests from out of state or mostly? In we occasionally, like, let's say on average, maybe every three to four months, some, we'll get contact from somebody out of state. And it's obviously, it's, you know, feasibility and things like that. But yeah, we've done cases, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, even New York and uh, New Hampshire. So Now, you mentioned earlier, you, you do have a day job. Yeah. But this is your passion. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. I would love to make this my, my job. No offense to my present employer. <laughs> I love it there, but um, yeah, this this is this is how I want to spend my time. Yeah. And what would you say to the skeptics? I would say, yeah, you know, keep an open mind and and uh, well, here here's the thing. This is what I want to say to skeptics is is that it only takes one paranormal experience for you to become a believer. What will you be doing on Halloween night? Uh, Trick or treating with my daughter, and you know, it's fam- fam- family time. So. Any last tips for us, Seamus? Don't be frightened. And uh, if if you ever encounter a ghost, reach out to a trusted paranormal team. I'm sure they'll be happy to help you. Seamus Denniston, founder and director of the Thame Society of Paranormal Investigations. Thanks for coming in. It was nice to speak with you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for having me. Coming up for years, Americans topped the record books for growing great big pumpkins. The squash is native to the new world. Now, the record holders are in Europe. What's their secret? We'll find out after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're not talking about SNL's hit character, 
David S. Pumpkins. Instead, we're focusing on pumpkins, a true Halloween classic. Have you carved your Halloween pumpkins yet? This time of year, the popular squash is everywhere. It's an important crop for some farm stands as summer shares wind down. Now, growing giant pumpkins has become a pretty big deal in Europe. Europeans are squashing the competition. To tell us more on the phone with us is Steve Reiners, chair of the horticulture section at Cornell University. Steve, welcome to where we live. Good morning. We know pumpkins are native to North America. So when did Europeans, uh, when they arrived here, what did they think when they saw these pumpkins growing? Well, we've been told that after a long ocean voyage, they saw these fields that had squash or pumpkins in it. Uh, they mistook them. They mistook them for melons. They weren't familiar with squash at all. So you can imagine they're they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're getting off these boats, thinking they're going to have this wonderful melon to eat. They eat it and find out it's a squash. Uh, extremely healthy, very good for you, but certainly was probably a disappointment to them. Uh, but squash had been grown here for for hundreds, if not thousands, of years by the Native Americans. An important crop. Uh, when did it become such a hot commodity, especially during the Halloween season we're in? It seems like you know there there's been it's been associated with uh, the Irish, and we a lot of people feel it was probably the Irish when they were immigrating here in the mid 19th century that brought that tradition with them. And um, the first the the first time we've ever seen anything in the literature about a, a carved pumpkin. Uh, is about eight, the mid-1860s, I think, when we first see that. So it's at that point in the mid-19th century that we start to see the, the idea of a pumpkin and the pumpkin carving, the association with that, with, with Halloween. Um, and it just kind of spread from there. Before pumpkins, what were they carving? Well, the original uh, thing that they were carving was turnips, and that goes back to the original story about why we even uh, carve pumpkins or, or turnips, and it goes back to a, a man supposedly in Ireland named Jack, with a jack-o'-lantern his name for, who pulled a, he tricked the dean, oh, the, the dean, yeah, he tricked the devil, I've got the dean on my mind, I suppose, <laughs> tricked the devil, um, um, the devil expected to get a, his soul, um, Jack reneged on it. Uh, when Jack died, of course, having made a deal with the devil, he couldn't go to heaven. He went to hell. The devil didn't want him. Uh, before he closed the gates of hell, Jack reached down with a half-eaten turnip that he had, pulled out an ember uh, out of hell, and continues to walk the earth uh, looking for a resting place. Mm. So we're talking about pumpkin growing today, and it's become competitive. How has that competition evolved over the years, Steve? Well, it's, it's really amazing when you look back at, you know, and, and what we're really talking about is, is the size, the biggest pumpkins that you can grow. And, you know, for, for like 70-some years, the biggest pumpkin or squash that was grown uh, was around 400 pounds. And I think the record stood from like 1904 to 19, the mid-1970s. And then after that point, we started to see a lot more interest. Um, so, you know, we had a 400-pound record winner in the, in the 1970s. I think in 2000, we finally got over 1,000 pounds. In 2006, over 1,500 pounds. In 2000, we finally, um, or 2012, we, we finally got the 2,000-pound uh, pumpkin, the one-ton pumpkin. And, uh, you know, I never, so it's just amazing how quickly this is, this is happening. And now, you know, we're looking at a 2,600-pound uh, winner. Um, that's the biggest one that's been grown in the world. And, and who's, who are growing these giant pumpkins, Steve? Well, 
up until the last few years, it has certainly been an American and really a Northeast tradition. Um, you know, pumpkins do very well with the climate that we have here in the Northeast. So we saw a lot of the, the largest pumpkins, the record holders for many years, were coming from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, you know, New York, and this area here. Uh, but shockingly, in, in 2014, out of the blue, uh, all of a sudden, we had a winner that came out of Europe with a 2,300-pound a pumpkin. Um, and now, last year, or, yeah, last year, 2016, we, we, we had a 2,600-pound pumpkin that, that came out of Belgium. Mm. So it's Belgium, Germany, Switzerland that uh, we're now seeing the largest pumpkins. I understand uh, these winners are actually plant scientists. They have an unfair advantage, in a way, of how they're growing these giant pumpkins. What's their strategy? Well, what we're, what we're hearing is that they're actually doing more of growing these pumpkins in greenhouse protected structures where, again, they can provide maybe some heat on the cold nights. They can provide a little cooling on days that are too hot. Um, so when they're doing that in a controlled environment like that, they're able to, um, to just maximize the ability for that pumpkin to put on some size. Now, for some local perspective on growing pumpkins, on the phone with us is George Humis, director of the New England Giant Pumpkin Growers, Growers Association. George, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So what's your take on these Europeans growing these pumpkins indoors? Well, there, there is an advantage to growing indoors, for sure. Um, but there's also some downsides, too. These guys that are doing this are also professional greenhouse uh, growers, um, the Patton brothers, and um, Matthias, I really can't pronounce his, his last name, Willemengens, I, I imagine is how you um, pronounce it. Um, they're professional growers, they've, so they've got the knowledge behind, behind them. Um, so they know how to operate a greenhouse. There's heating, cooling. You know, if you just throw up a greenhouse around mm-hmm. here, you better be prepared to, you know, be able to cool it in the summer. And um, I think another thing that they're probably doing, and no one will admit to it, but I think that they're using CO2, mm-hmm. which is easily done with a CO2 generator in a greenhouse. It can't be done outside. And that's a, that's a game changer there. Now, uh, George, you've been doing this uh, for a long time. Uh, ta- yeah. Talk us through how uh, the, the New Englander grows a pumpkin and the strategies. Uh, you know, I tried to have a pumpkin patch a few years ago. I thought it'd be uh, nice for my son. And then I was introduced to the squash beetle, and that <laughs> and oh, my yeah. pumpkins didn't do too squash well. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and tell us uh, the best ways to grow a pretty good pumpkin here. Well, I, I can't tell you the best way, but I'll tell you how I do it, and most of us do it. Um, Usually start our seeds in April, probably the third week in April, indoors. Um, we put heating cables in the ground with a small hoop house or greenhouse. Mine is um, 6 by 10 feet. Um, so we preheat the soil. We put that plant out around, I go out usually May 5th, which is, you know, pretty early for around here. Um, and we try to get our plant out and growing and be the size we want by the 21st of June, which is, you know, the longest day of the year. So that's when we try to pollinate our pumpkins um, right around that time so we can take advantage of the long, longest days of the year, um, more photosynthesis or whatever. So there's a lot of timing involved. 
So when you do pollinate, if you're lucky, if you're outside, if you're lucky, it's the weather's good for those 10 days when that, you know, that pumpkin is uh, going through cell division uh, at pollination. But if you have cold weather, whatever you may, that may slow it down. So timing could affect, even in that first 10 days, could affect your final size. So that's where a greenhouse could, could probably really benefit you. Um, when we talk about competition, is there a monetary benefit uh, here, Steve? Or are they are they bringing in cash prizes? There are cash prizes, but if you think you're going to win and make money growing giant pumpkins, you're going to go broke. <laughs> um, uh, th- like we compete at Topsfield Fair, which is a great sponsor. Um, top prize is sixty five hundred dollars, which is a, a good a good amount of money, um, but. I won't say it costs $6,000 to grow a giant pumpkin, but we spare no expense. We spend a lot of money on soil amendments and mycorrhizae, you know. Um, so these things want for nothing. <laughs> they, they get everything they possibly could need. Um, Steve Reiners is with us, chair of the horticulture section at Cornell University. Uh, the European growers, uh, are they selling these seeds for big money, Steve? Well, you might know. years ago there was, as Steve mentioned earlier, that, you know, when the record was much lower, 400 pounds, Howard Dill um, had a seed patent. He developed the Atlantic Giant Seed, and that's the seed that we all use. Um, so there was a 20-year seed patent on that. And even after that um, expired, people more or less res- respected it and just traded seeds for free, back and forth. You just asked someone for seeds, and they would send them to you. Um, as you know, there's more groups now. There's much, much more uh, competition. It's spread to Europe. Um, people started auctioning seeds to make money for their clubs, so that they could uh, have prize money for their wayoffs. So now we've gone to the next step, where people are actually selling seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't say whether that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, people put a lot of time and effort into it. But the reason we have gotten where we are is just backyard growers trading seeds, you know, and doing genetic um, selective breeding. Uh, look where we've come. We're, you know, we're gonna we're gonna see three thousand pounds in our lifetime very shortly. I mean, we're at twenty six hundred now. There was it was a big deal to hit seven hundred when I started growing pumpkins 20 years ago. I'm going to have uh, Steve Reiner's weigh in on uh, these giant pumpkins and uh, the, you know, the selling of the seeds, Steve. Well, yeah, I mean, I think George and others sometimes sell themselves short in terms of not being, you know, trained plant scientists, but in a lot of ways, they they are just as knowledgeable, if not more, than than uh, a lot of scientists in terms of the best way to grow these. Um, they've they've done this. They've learned it, and uh, they have selected it. These great sized pumpkins. So, I mean, I'm happy to see them being able to sell some seed um, because of the effort that they've put into it. Um, I, I hope that the the money you know they get they get it and, and they can uh, it's. They get it fairly in terms of, you know, everybody's getting a shot at it. It's helping the club and the others. It's kind of a shame to see it as sort of become, as George was saying, you know, something where everybody was sharing the information, was sharing the seed, and now we've gotten to the point where, you know, some are, are, are spending big money. 
to get that seed. We're getting an email from a listener. She wants to know, I'll, I'll go to you, George. Can these, these big pumpkins be eaten? Do they taste good? What's done with them in the end? Well, well, what's done with them in the end is a lot of times they're, you know, we try to we try to get some of our money, but we spend a lot of money to grow a pumpkin. So we might sell one to, you know, a, a restaurant or a casino or, uh, you know, a zoo or something. Um, we carve them into boats sometimes. Um, there's a, a, quite a few uh, pumpkin regattas in the world now. Um, I had no idea. Being eaten, they've been bred for... It's, and, it's, and we always say it's not a beauty contest. They're, they're not necessarily, we don't really care too much what they look like. Um, they're all beautiful to us, you know, when you grow it. But um, they don't taste good. They're, they're mostly water, very watery. Um, so no pie? No pie. Um, and we use, you know, we do use some systemics. Um, so it's not a good idea to eat them. Mm. We may use stuff that's not approved for food crops to grow them. Well, I want to thank Georgia Humis, director of the New England Giant Pumpkin Growers Association. Uh, Steve Reiners is also with the chair of the horticulture section at Cornell University. I'd imagine you'd need a, a pretty strong chainsaw to carve these, Steve. Yeah, it certainly would. It's not something you're going to be able to do easily with a, with a, a knife. And, and some a challenge I'll throw out to everybody is some engineers looked at the size of pumpkins, and they feel that probably you could get up to a 20,000-pound pumpkin before it would just become too large and would just sort of fall in on itself. So we, we may have a lot further to go. Well, I want to thank you for, uh, for telling us about this competition out there in the world for the biggest pumpkin. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to technical producer Kyone Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, Stranger Things. This is WNPR.